Welcome to episode 30 of the Sports Stories podcast. My name's Dave Levine and I've been your host for all the conversations we've had so far. This is the last episode of series three and I'm delighted to have Greg Baker with me. Greg is the head coach of British Para Table Tennis and has a long history of being involved in performance sport from being an athlete, pathway coach, right through to being head coach leading into the next Olympics. Greg is passionate about helping develop people and when we have individuals on the podcast like this, there is never a shortage of fantastic insights, honesty and some real practical tips for the listeners to take away. I've said this before, but please invest in yourself and take some quiet and protective time for you. You may wish to consider getting a notebook to log some of your thoughts. I'm sure you'd want to get the most you can from the conversation. So let's move on into the show and let me give a very warm welcome to my special guest, head coach for British Para Table Tennis, performance mentor and executive coach, Mr. Greg Baker. Greg, it's really great to have you on the Sports Stories podcast. So thanks for for joining me today. I I know you've got a a lot on your hands at the moment uh, with all of what's going on in the sports centres and getting everybody, everybody back into work. So I really appreciate your time. Usually kick off by just giving my guests a bit of an opportunity just to introduce themselves, but also just to give us um, a sense of how you got involved in sport and what's one of your earliest memories, because I think that usually gives us nice flavours. Thanks, Dave. Well, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Um, really looking forward to it and just exploring some of my my background and, and where the conversation goes. So, yeah, really curious to, to see where it goes. I think, you know, where did I get involved in sport? Sport, you know, sport for me is always been part of my life. It's... Uh, it's one of my big, big passions. Um, and my, my family were very sporty. Uh, my dad, you know, played every sport going. Uh, and, and I think he wanted to really, for a better word, test me out to see how I was <laughs> uh, and see if I was a, a good sports player or athlete. Um, so, he, t- you know, he very took me along at very early age, six, seven, into um he saw that I had good hand-eye coordination. He saw I could, you know, I could kick a ball, etc. So he took me along to as many sports as possible. It was football, cricket, tennis was the ones that stood out first. Um, and I loved it, you know. I think one, it was a local youth club, you know, we used to go and just play lots of different multi-sports. And, and I loved it. And you could see I loved it. And, and therefore, he, he carried on taking me to, to different sports until eventually got to the point where, you know, I really focused on, on one of them and that was table tennis. Yeah. It was my sister that was playing table tennis before. Um, and I think my dad just took me along. Uh, my mum was working and, and my dad took me along to the table tennis club in our local town as a, uh, you know, Greg just coming up, watch a bit, bit of babysitting really coming up, coming up, uh, <laughs> come and watch your sister and, and, and you know, behave yourself and and I sort of can I have a go at this sport you know can I can I pick you know you said absolutely and then from that moment it sort of clicked and um what was it that clicked with it I think everything in terms of that hand-eye coordination the the speed around the table the the curiosity of the game where it's really open you know it's a it's an open game you don't know what to expect from it you and I quite enjoyed that. It's quite a challenge. So, you know, from, from such an early age, I, so I was in that youth club and I think within a couple of hours of, of, of being there, I spent, I must've, I must've trained if you like, or it was just practice or have a bit of a knock around as we could, used to call it with about eight or nine different people. And that like being able to understand not only are you trying to get the ball over the net, but you're also you're playing against different people with different styles and therefore you've got to work that out straight away. That was like, this is, this is great because it's, it's combining physicality with 
being strategic and that yeah. that that fits quite nicely with um if you like my mindset now where you're always trying to to make things better and uh look at, look to the future and strategize but also be quite reactive in the moment when you need to be so it just yeah. it just fits there and that will never go away that's 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 who i am and where my future's took me really but that's yeah. that's probably what clicks straight away i would say it's got all the ingredients kind of stuff hasn't it it sounds <laughs> yeah i think it's just i was just really curious and you know, like I had to then make a decision on where do I go with sport? Because at the time when, as I said before, when I was picked up the table tennis bat, I was, I was playing tennis at quite a good level. You know, I was getting, my dad took me to tennis coaching. I was representing Staffordshire at the time. Football in the local uh, uh, town, playing for them. Also in cricket, I was doing the same as well. So I had to make a call and, you know, chose table tennis once I started going to training then and taking it up properly. Um I was developing at that sport quicker than the other sports right. and I started getting called up for like regional, then national trials. And those are therefore I, I specialized very early and people could say that's good or bad, but I, you know, I, I special, I did specialize early and then I got selected to go to a, the national center in table tennis when I was 12. So I had to move away from home, move school and really put, if you like your eggs in one basket to try and make a career out of this sport. Gosh, at the age, of, at the age of 12. Yeah. So that is yeah, 12 is a massive looking back, you know, you think, you think it's just normal because you think, hang on, National Centre, uh, you've been selected for England, you're going to live at a National Centre and you think, well, well, yeah, of course, why would I say no to that? And of course, you're only 12, so you, pe- you, don't, you, you, you don't know what's going on, really. <laughs> Your parents are, and I think they just said, well, you know, you love it. It's, it's a great opportunity for you. It's not too far away from home. So it was in Nottingham and we were okay. based in Tamworth near Birmingham. So there's something good about that uh so so went for it and yeah it's a bit looking back at now you think how do you do that you know you've got to you've got to change school at that age it's quite difficult so I was going into year nine I think it was um yeah it was year nine so big change so you look you you know all your friends from from home you're not really going to have much contact with them you're going to a new new setting and actually when you're going into this school you're not actually making a, a, a friends uh creating a lot of friends because at the end of the day at 3pm you're going back to train you're not going to hang around with your mates so your mates really with your squad your teammates um so you sort of grew up with those and and we've stayed you know close friends and some of them are actually involved in uh, in my sort of coaching team now in my current job so it's great to, to... And, and Greg looking back at that time what was it like how how did you transition through that period because that must have been kind of really strange you know being put into that environment at such a young age you know not having a, a connection at school but actually really focusing what how did it feel doing all that can you remember yeah I think it, it, it was tough because you had to um you know you've got the training to to deal with which was obviously uh tough and, and obviously they challenged us to be the best we could be um and then you've got the education. So we had private tutoring at night times as well to make sure we were catching up on any schoolwork. Cause yeah. obviously we'd go away a lot with the squad and there'll be training camps where we wouldn't go to school on certain weeks or 10 days and to our full on training camps with different countries that used to come and, 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 and train with us. So that was, that was quite tough. And I think, you know, what we just, what we had to do as a group is I think we were all very committed. I think everyone that went right. there is very committed that they've got a purpose that they want to be, they don't want to be an athlete. They want to make a career out of this. They want to give it a go. So we all had that as a common purpose. So we, yeah. we sort of, you know, got on with each other as a squad because there was a lot of respect for each other, even at that age, because you sort of know that, you, you know, you've, you've done a lot here to come away from your families and that. So there's, 
you know, even if you didn't see eye to eye with some of your teammates, which of course you're not always going to because everyone's different, there's always that underlying respect and common purpose of why you're there. And I think that helps in any any setting in any team, um, whether you look at 12 years old or, or for in senior executives within business or in sport. So there was always that that brought us together. And I think in times of need when it was hard because there were days where it was very hard and you want to see your parents or mm. missing friends etc then we sort of helped each other which um which is you know probably one of the reasons why well, we think we'll go on to it's the reason why i coach the way i do coach because some of those memories and what do you what would you say you picked up from that experience in terms of your development and learning other than the sort of the technical and the tactical aspects of the sport now what did you learn about yourself during that period well, I think looking back, you don't really know it at the time. You're yeah. just taking every day as it comes, um, you know, and you're just being, you're being quite reactive. You're getting up, you're training, you go to school, you know, you just, you, you, you normalise it. But looking back now, you know, so many years down the line, the, the resilience that you pick up from such an early age um, is, is quite incredible. So there's a lot of setbacks in that time where, you're challenging to try and get your education done. You're challenging to be a really good athlete. Um, you're trying to hit the physical uh, parameters and, and targets that were set as well. So there's a lot of challenge going on. And obviously you're not going to succeed every day. And that brought that huge amounts of resilience in, in the way I do things. Um, failed in a lot of things, but then being able to brush yourself down and then roll your sleeves up and go again. All of that. This, this this journey going to this academy at such an early age that yeah. really helped me with that. Um, yeah. So I would say I was very resilient from an early age, not only in a sport point of view, but like you say, going away from family and yeah. you know if you miss your parents on you know on Tuesday at eleven p.m. at night, there's nothing really you can do. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna have to just go right. This is difficult, but I've got support around me. I know where I can go to if I need it. And um, but that's really that set me up to be quite quite strong, quite bold in yeah. my decision making. Um, know that you're going to make some mistakes as you go on in your career, um, but you're going to learn from those mistakes to make you stronger. Yeah. You know, and that has played out in some of the roles that I've done in my my, my coaching roles, where yeah. you know you're not always going to get the going to get things right, but you experiment, but you know that you're doing it to be the best you can be for yourself and for your athletes. And 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 that probably from an early age definitely is in, you know instilled itself in me from yeah. from that experience. Do you think you learned that through the experience or did you bring that into the experience? I'm just kind of curious to this whole idea of where where do we pick up that resilience, whether that was an inbred thing within the, the earlier environment or whether that actually that experience of leaving home at 12 you know, which is still still very young, but whether you learnt it through them, just what's your sense? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think, you know, resilience, everything gets piled into you from my belief from, I mean, you start to remember things, I think it's the age of, well, as soon as you're born, yeah. things that are done in terms of, you know, how you look, how your parents look after you, how they, uh, how they are with you growing up, what they teach you. I think that it all starts from there, you know, in terms of being resilient. Uh, you know how 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 parents help you with with failure with with being able for you to get on with things and and and, and search for solutions on your own as a child when you're playing it i think it stems from childhood and i think what that academy did for me is then go right from an from probably an early age and the average person is you, you being independent now now it's about you to, to crack on with it yourself and you, you don't necessarily have your parents around you so you know a lot of times for you would say the average um youngster it's probably 
uh, it's probably university where they go away for the first time. And so that's 18. It's a few more years down, you know, a few more, a few more years at home before they do that. So that started early for me. Um, so I think it's a bit of both. It's from your childhood and what your, your parents do from early age into then, right, here's the experience. And you're going to have to flex and adapt and change and be able to, to go, you know, take some, uh, understand your mistakes and where you need to, to learn to get better and, and, and just go with what's happening in front of you and be able to adapt. You know, there were some people that didn't fancy it and left. Right. There's always an option that you could leave, of course. Um, yeah. But there was always something that came back to me as well. If you want to give this the best shot, you've got to try and, um, you want to try and give it a go and, and it's going to be tough. But actually, um, you know, if I look back at it now, there's absolutely no regrets because I do believe that's played a part in in giving me the mindset to to, to be able to deliver and want to deliver and want to keep pushing myself uh, and helping my athletes then that I work with be the best they can be. So it's definitely gave me that platform. Right. Um, yeah. And so you, you went from that kind of stage, obviously, of going through the academy. Um, where did your playing career go and how did you bring that kind of resilience and those sort of attributes into your performance as you got a little bit older? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think I didn't do it that well as an athlete, if I'm honest. Right. Um, I, looking back at it now, it gave me that platform to push on. But as an athlete, I had a short career. Um, I had a decision to make at, I think it was 18, you know, what, do you go to university or do you go and, 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 and try and go for this and go, and go abroad into a European league and yeah go full-time athlete uh, money yeah. from it etc um and he decided to stay university and something in that decision that i went mm, if i make if i'm deciding to stay at university yes you can still train whilst being at university but it was a limited training than if you'd have gone into a full-time academy yeah. in a club abroad now i'd left the national center at the age of 16 because there was talks of it being closed down with a lack of funding and i didn't want to be there when it closed down so I did decide after four years to do my my sixth form back at home in the school that I left when I you know previously uh, the same school as uh, when I left did my sixth form then whilst training at the same time still still serious with the sport and then um, had to make a decision at 18 whether I go abroad in a European club or or, or go down the university yeah. route as well as train and I chose that one so why why did you choose that one what was the what do you think well, was, was the driving force behind that yeah, there was something about, you know, we talk about being an athlete, you're quite selfish mm -hmm. versus, and when you, but then when you get into coaching uh, or, or leading people, you become selfless. Yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, I was, I was, I was very selfless. <laughs> um, as, as I, as I, there was, with it, I, I was selfish as an athlete in terms of I need to be the best I can be and I need to train and I need to work hard. But actually, I found helping others. At a very early age, very satisfying, if you like, and very exciting that I've been able to help that person be try and be better at what they do. And that gave me a bit of a buzz and a bit of excitement. So when I started having those feelings, at the, even at the age of 17, 18, right. then I was starting to think, well, you know, and that's why I wanted to go to university and study coaching. Study, so I did coaching and sports development. And actually, on you know, being selfless was, you know, I started coaching very early, age of 16, 17, 18. Um, just something about it that just got me excited. Uh, and so that's where I thought there's something in this. And I think it's very similar to, you know, you hear business people 
um, entrepreneurs, etc., where they they've set up very early yeah. um, uh, in their garages or whatever, or on the streets selling juice to people in the street, yeah. etc. Yeah. And you know, all of a sudden, they've got that entrepreneurship very early on. For me, looking back, that's actually coaching. I remember doing a video with my dad, a coaching video at the age of, I think I was seven or eight. And we did it, old school video. My mom was doing the video uh, recording. My dad was, if you like, my dad was like my prop. I was telling him what to do. And he, he didn't say a word. I was like, can you stand there? Can you do that? And it was, it was in football at the time. And I was, I was coaching, teaching people how to do certain skills and, and talking into the camera. And it's like, you know, I was eight years of age. So there's something looking back then. I'm, mm. It was in my roots to help other people. And, and, and there was something that I quite enjoyed about doing that to show what I know, give that to other people. But then obviously if I've learned as has gone on, it's not all about what I've known. It's understanding what other people know and how to get the best out of them in that way. But yeah, it, that's, that's why I made that decision. And eventually what happened was I went to university and that love for helping other people and that coaching, especially as I was then studying it at university, there was a more desire and more love there to, to do that. And my sort of playing career really stopped at the age of, I think I stopped performing at the age of 21. Right. Um, which you know for some people they're just doing that accelerating but that, that's yeah. where my coaching accelerated where do those roots come from then greg you know in terms of that coaching teaching educating helping others to, to say that you picked it up there or something in you at the age of sort of seven eight nine even you know the, where does that come from i think whenever you, when I, all those sports that i played i always had i always had a good relationship with the coach or coaches right. yeah um I also, you know, I really enjoyed the fact that someone else is trying to help me get better. So, so I had a massive amount of respect for teachers and coaches because, you know, I thought, you know, they're, they're trying to give their skill set and knowledge experience onto me. Um, and I, you know, even from a very early age, I respected that hugely. And I think that's where I wanted to mirror that and, and, and everything that I was starting to learn. Can I then help other people? That, that, I think that love came from there. Um, you know, I never had a, a if you like a conflicting coach athlete relationship may, you know, maybe that would have happened as I'd grown older as an athlete where you start to wanting to question a few things and make some decisions on your own, of course. Um, but I think it was mainly down to, uh, you know, and also my parents being very caring, very right. trying to get the best out of you, um, helping you, uh, traveling with you everywhere to, 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 you know, with this being an athlete and, and the table tennis from that age of 12 to 18, we traveled all over the country. They'd give everything up for me to. And I think that, you know, I, I, I respected that care. And I think then I, I used that as well to, to, to help and care other people care for other people to be the best they can be. So that, that yeah. very early age of that parental support and then yeah. that, you know, for me going, oh, hang on, these coaches are giving me it. This is fantastic. How can, that's where I just, I wanted to do the same. I wanted to mirror that from an so, early age. And so when you talk about that sort of coach-athlete relationship and, and the aspects that you pick up or you did pick up from them, what would you say they are? What did you pick up from them in that early age that you started replicating or bringing into forming your kind of coaching approach? Yeah, I think it's listening to... You know, one thing I had, you know, coaches being able to ask questions and being able to really get the insight and, 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 and input from me as the athlete, I found quite uh, 
respectful, quite, right. you know, they want to hear from me. And, and that helped me then tailor my own coaching philosophy for like to make sure that athletes are having as much input into training programs into where they need to go as much as the coaches, because at the end of the day, this is a two-way process. This is a, a two-way relationship. It's not one way. It needs to be two-way. This is going to work and explore. And I think, you know, even when you're at the age of seven or eight, when, when a, a cricket coach asks you to demonstrate or ask yeah. you to, to say what you think of this shot to the rest of the group, they're giving you that ownership. They're giving that, that, that independence to, to talk in front of a group and I think that was like hang on but there's something clicked there even from when I was going into coaching early from 18 19 that if I can get other people to be take ownership and to 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 be independent in the you know designing and develop their own training programs with coaches at the heart of it as well then then this is going to really kick on this is going to go somewhere so that's what I think underpins exactly my coach athlete relationship is that it's absolutely two-way and can't just be one way can't just be athlete led can't be just coach led it's yeah. got to be a 50 50 type relationship if it's if you're going to go the extra mile for each other and you're going to totally trust each other in times of need and uncertainty which high performance sport is totally all about that every day so uh yeah that that's that's probably the fundamental thing that i found curious at an early age and yeah. when looking back at it gone well, that really helped me in that moment. So how can I use that to, to help the athlete, my athletes that I work with going forwards? And Greg, have you got any examples as you've sort of moved into that kind of coaching environment? And I, I'm conscious that, you know, you currently work at, at a very high-performing environment. You know, did you come straight in there? How did you work your way up to being there? And what were the successes on the way? Yeah, well, it's funny enough, you know, I was saying about yeah, that coach, I didn't start coaching off like that, actually. So right. this is where I've learned from some of my, you know, you finish your career and you think you have this, this belief that coaching is about at the start when you coaching career that you have all the answers and, you know, <laughs> you, you are the god of, of coaching and, and, and players are coming to you for answers and you give the answers. Um, it's not to quite a bit down my coaching career that then I started to pick up on some of those things that I said before about in my childhood and actually where did I get my wins as an athlete and why did I get those wins um so yeah early on in my coaching career you know you want to be everything you want to be the the trainer the coach the snc the psychologist everything you think you know because you think you have to be that uh, you have to be this perfect example of of a of a human being of a coach for people to look up to and want because you're a role model etc and that's definitely how I started coaching, you know, uh, and at the time you think it's the right way to be. Uh, and maybe, and that's a little bit because I, I, I like to be the best at everything that I do. And there's a bit of perfectionism in, in that. So that's probably, it's come from that a little bit. Um, and obviously what that, what that, what they did was obviously that worked for some people, but for others, obviously to be direct and told what to do all the time is not going to work. And it caused huge amounts of conflict with certain athletes um and 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 of course it, it it in my early in my coaching career you know as you work with younger athletes you can sort of you know they respect you and you can and you can be quite directive at times but actually then you start to work with more senior athletes and athletes that have medal on the international international stage and then they want to be more involved in decision making they want to have more input and you know that 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 was quite a bit of a a learning curve for me going into work with world-class performance athletes that have met a, a good level. They've, they've hit certain standards and certain uh, competencies to get to that level. And of course 
they don't want to be told all the time what to do or where to go because they have they're all unique they're all different they're all going in different directions albeit towards a, a common purpose um, so that really challenged me on my coaching and, and in my current role you know that's also evolved so I've evolved from being a talent coach with with British yeah. Paratavers into a performance coach into a head coach um, and I think where we were as a program when I first started as a head coach is is the program needed a bit of directness they needed a bit of um, it needed a bit of challenge high challenge from me as a head coach because we were at a position that um, if it you know if we didn't do that then the program could have no funding and no no career the effort you know and we're just at a position where we needed a bit of right this is where we're going this is what this is the the, the pathway for this program but if I'd have carried on doing that throughout all of my head coach career so far then I believe a lot of athletes we'd have lost a lot of athletes there would have made huge amounts of conflict we wouldn't have had sustainable success so I think what I've learned along the way is what's needed in one time or one context is, can be totally different than the next year or the next context as the program grows older um, you're moving in the direction of where you want to go in terms of your strategic objectives but also the athletes get a little bit older then new athletes come in so I suppose the skill then of a head coach is to go new athletes onto the program might need to be coached in this way, but these athletes that have stayed on for two, three different uh, Olympic cycles are much more in charge of their, of their programs are going to take much more ownership. Yeah. So I think then the, as the years have gone on, I've had to really flex and adapt my coaching. And, and, and now I would say that is for any future coach, um, the more you're able to adapt, who, not only who you're working with, but the context that you're working in and what you're trying to achieve is then how it underpins how you, how you coach. So I definitely, if I'd have had that at the start, it would have been fantastic. And I think that's, you, know, you look at coach development programs, if we can start to get coaches to, to be that, where I would say I am now, very early on in their coaching career, then I think we could have some absolutely fantastic coaches for the future. And Greg, was that a gradual learning process or do you think there was a moment that actually triggered that learning? Because again, you know, if we were to try and bring it into people's development earlier now, could we? Or do you think this is something you need? You have evolved and learnt over time. Yeah, and being diplomatic, I'd say a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course, um, as you learn, you you would say that you actually now now just saying it then is you, is you if if no one's there challenging your learning, however, then actually you could keep doing the same thing over and over again. So what what really helped me is. I'm quite a reflective and analytical person anyway. I like to review my performance, but maybe not everyone's like that. And But at the same time, I quite like someone on when I was on coach development programs to go, do you think that's the best way to do that, actually? You know, but because maybe you can do that better. Um, and have you questioned how you're being in your coaching environment when the you know, athletes are perceiving you as this, this and this? Why is that? You know, and there's two ways you can take that. And I quite like that challenge because I knew that, well, this is what I need to get better and better. I want really experienced people that have been there and done it, or they've done research in it to, to actually see things that I not, might not be able to see. So going back to your question, I think it, I would definitely say it's both because you need the experience to see where you're going and what's happening and to learn from it. But you also need people to be able to challenge you on your blind spots that you can't see from a developmental point of view. Um, who might see things different to you or different perspectives because you're totally in it in a coaching sense and you're in the mists of all that performance yeah. uh, and that's what really helped me so you know you're getting older you, you're you're picking up new insights you're you're curious and exploring new things as a coach 
run the coach development programs. You get in to speak to different people from different sports. You get in to see how they coach. You get in to talk about that as a group. You then go into different environments in terms of leadership and, and seeing how you can apply that into your own environment. And without that, maybe I'd still be the same coach as I was when I was 18, 19. Because, you know, going back to what I said before, is you think you have all the answers when you come into early into a coaching career. Of course you don't, but that's what you think at the time. And so if I didn't have that challenge or want to push myself to, to improve, then maybe I'd still be the same. And there's no way I believe that I would be in a position that I am in today and had some of the success that we've had as a sport Mm-hmm. Um, if I'd not evolved and changed along the way. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's probably a message, isn't it, that, you know, as, as we get more experienced, we need that development, we need that challenge, because no matter where we are in our careers, we don't have all the answers and we need other people to be out and not just challenge us on, on why we do the things that we do. How, how did you get that challenge, though? Because, you know, I, I do know parts of your story and your journey. And, you know, in terms of actually what's inspired you and driven you to be successful along your way, what, what, what have you done along the way to, to, to sort of facilitate that for you, to make sure that you can be the best version of you? I think one of the, one of the things here is, and, you know, and I'm not saying that you should get into coaching very early, um, well, who knows? I mean, let's put it this way. The, the reason I say that is if I'd have won Olympic medals as an athlete, I'd have got into coaching later, potentially. And maybe winning an Olympic medal, I would have perceived myself to have much more, more answers and I don't need challenge from outside because I've been there and done it and therefore know how to then make another athlete be successful in, in that sport. Versus getting into coaching very early, albeit I did have that sort of mentality to start with, but then you start to look around you and go, well, no, I don't because that's happening, that's happening, and you start to challenge yourself. But as a younger age, you could say you've, you've got more of a um, sponge to learn, more of a thirst. A curiosity um, there. Yeah. Curiosity to explore it. Yeah. And, and then you could say, and this is a bit of a, you know, a controversial because it's not exactly to the actual point true, but there's that, always that debate on do the best athletes make the best coaches? Mm-hmm. And do coaches that haven't fulfilled their, co- their playing career make the best coaches? And in my instance, that has made me the best coach I can be. Because mm-hmm. that thirst and that drive to want to win uh, and want to push myself mm-hmm. has never gone away, mm-hmm. yet I've put it into a coaching capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually some of the things that I could have done better as an athlete, I, didn't, I wanted to make sure that my athletes don't fall for the same trap. Yeah. Or, so therefore I wanted to, and that's where the selfless comes into it. Okay. Yeah. This is, I want to help you guys uh, uh, make better decisions around X, Y, and Z that I didn't do as a, even as a young, even as a young athlete. Um, so that thriving and thirst has it never went away. Um, so I think for, in my example, in my instance, that's yeah. where that come from, from, from very early into coaching, but, but eventually knew after about one year into working on a, on a program knew that I didn't have all the answers and I need to make sure, cause I'm looking at people around me, they're doing different things. And I'm, you know, and I have huge amount of respect for I have huge amounts of respect for the system at the time. So, you know, Britain uh, on world-class performance programs and, and, and the national lottery coming in and, and we're making progress and making, so, so, so my, my mindset was, well, if, if, if we're winning, if things are getting better, other people must be doing something right. So let's, I'm curious to see how they're doing their things. And, and that's why I wanted to learn from people that have been successful in coaching and, and I had a lot of respect for. Um, yeah. 
You, you raise a really interesting point there, though, for me, that the, the idea that actually the realisation that I didn't have the answers is actually the thing that spurred me on the most. You know, and I'm just it's something like, you know, when we can accept that we don't need to have the answers to be the the expert helper, that really does help because then we can go out there and, and explore and encourage ourselves to learn and expose ourselves to take risks and so on. Um, can you reflect back a little and think, you know, what was probably one of your biggest learning experiences that you had that's really, really informed and made you the coach you are? Uh, it all, if it had to come down to one, it would definitely be Beijing 2008. Um, it always comes back to that. So we're at the games, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate at a very early age to be to be a performance coach for the squad. And I'd only been a performance co coach for the squad for about 18 months. Be uh, role before that, I was working as a, a talent coach with the same squad. And before that, I was working on the Olympic programme, some of their under 15 and under 18 programmes. Um, so I'd gone from the Olympics uh, as an athlete into then uh, Olympic sort of coaching into then para coaching and different levels. And I'd, so I'd been a performance coach on their program for about 18 months, working with some of their world-class athletes. Um, we went to Beijing and we were expected to, uh, to, to win some medals. Um, and, uh, and I wasn't ready um, for that environment. If I'm honest, looking back uh, again, you thought, yeah, sure. I'm up for this. I was definitely up for it and I've never changed it, but I actually got there and, all the work, looking back now, all my work leading up to Beijing was getting the athletes ready for Beijing. Mm. But I didn't think about getting me ready. You know, and you could say, is that the program's responsibility? Is the coach's responsibility? I'd say it's a bit of both. Um, but I wasn't ready. So I was going, you know, into that environment where, you know, Beijing was the start of, of I mean, it was the, it's the home of table tennis. Yeah. you go in and you just bosh the crowd <laughs> like you know something that you've never experienced before and your heart's starting to go and that that then you know changed the way i coached in the moment under pressure yeah um you know i probably came across different at the games than i would have done at international events and i think the players would have picked that up on me yeah. um which obviously then could change the way that they perform um you know, making the right calls. Do I decide to take a time out here? How do I talk to an athlete when they're under pressure? How, you know, I'm under, I'm feeling the pressure. They're feeling the pressure. And there's this, what's, how am I going to speak to them? Communication and uh, yeah, just, just not ready for any of that, if I'm honest. So, you, and again, it's probably because early on in your coaching career, not only do you believe you have all the answers, but secondly, you think that by just understanding the technical attributes of the game is enough as a coach. You know, and, and that's what is, is I perceived early on in my coaching career is that if you if you have all the technical principles and you're this technical guru, then athletes are going to respect you and you're going to go on and do some great things as a coach. What I didn't realize is all of the technical principles go totally out the window when your heart's going 100 miles an hour, you're sweating, you're feeling nervous and you're in the performance zone in Beijing and you've got to try and help an athlete win a match yeah. um, and then you've got to help them prepare then you've got all things coming left right and center from this media the whole world watching you uh, it's totally different totally unique so that experience at the games and the same time we didn't win any medals we right. underperformed from that point of view um, I probably looked back and thought that I'd failed as a as a coach there because we didn't win medals and I 
looking back and when I reflected, did I give my best self to the athletes that I work with in those games? And the answer is probably no. Um, but what that did was, was set me a platform to go, right, um, if we're fortunate enough to get UK sport funding on the back of this, which we did because of London 2012, mm-hmm. um, and if the sport are willing to keep me on as a coach, then I'm going to do everything I can possible to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And of course, that, it can happen again. Not, you know, I'm, it, it, of course, it can. Even if you prepare the best way, it can. Sport, sport, it's unpredictable. But I'm going to make sure I look back as a coach at the end of every cycle and go, I've done everything possible in my power and my control, and working with the team that I'm working with, the athletes, to make sure that everybody is ready. You know, and, and that's what that's probably set me up. Not only is it. You know, we come back to the questions you asked me before, Dave, around that resilience from an early age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That came up then in Beijing to have that resilience to go on. Because I could have just gone, coaching's oh. not for me. Because I had these questions as, is this for me in this high-performance environment? Am I up for it? You know, and the answers to all of them was absolutely yes. I know where we need to go. I, know where, I now know where I need to go as a coach and where I need to focus my development. Mm-hmm. And I suppose all the things that really set me up to then challenge myself as a coach because you start, to, we didn't meddle. And then you start going, well, I don't have all the answers then because I thought I was ready. And then, right, I need to challenge myself. I need to be curious. I need to explore. I want to really so go what, for So what did you do, Greg, then in, in that space to then sort of to really push yourself on and make sure that for, 20, for 2012, you were prepared in a much better way? Well, <clears throat> so there was a couple of things. We were changing as a sport considerably. So... Mm-hmm. Um, we, based on those results, we decided to centralise as a sport in Sheffield, um, put our world-class programme there. Uh, there was a lot of chopping and changing with staff. Uh, the head coach uh, resigned, the performance director resigned, um, one of the coaches resigned. I stayed on because I wanted to make sure that that wasn't it and, and, and let's change this. There's a, there's a great opportunity here. Rather than it looking like we've we failed, there's still a great opportunity for for if you could say if individually for me to really shape the future of the sport, yeah. to shape the coaching. Uh, we've got young athletes coming through, and if they're you know driven in the right way and got the right support around them, then they're going to have a great chance in London and Rio and Tokyo and beyond. This is a long term project; it's not short term. If we're going to you know we're literally no medals in in, in Beijing. I remember playing China in Beijing and we got absolutely in one of the team events and we just got absolutely taken apart. So to get that to even a, a position in London in four years time where we can compete, this is long-term, but then you're thinking more Rio, you're thinking Tokyo, you think those, you know, this is a long-term project. So I knew that I was in it for the long-term because it's my sport and, um, you know, you want to give everything to your sport. And so there was a lot going on there and I believed I was in a position to help uh, when the new performance director came in to to help that performance director give them a bit of history, give them where the sport's going, give them an insight into my world um, and help that him shape the culture going forwards because I'd been there and seen it and seen what happened on the ground in Beijing. Um, and at the same time, you know, we were given that funding from UK Sport and, you know, that that's really give us a platform, you know, it's a home games. They believed in the pathway that we had in terms of these young athletes, like I mentioned before, coming through. And so there was offerings from UK Sport in terms of coach development. And at the time, it was called uh, ECAP, so the Elite Coach Apprenticeship Programme. 
And I was like, absolutely want to go into that. You know, I've, I've, I've made my decision. I want to stay in the sport. I want to stay in coaching. I want to do everything I can to try and change these results around. Therefore, to do that, not only do I need to help the um, performance director with culture and centralise and who we put our resources into, who've got medal potential, etc. I also need to make sure that I'm developing because I definitely wasn't ready in Beijing in terms of being ready for that pressured environment. So, so I wanted to make sure I was learning there. And ECAP seemed to be the right direction to go in in terms of multiple perspectives, Olympic right. and Paralympic coaches, um, great tutors. You know, you're going to you're going to be given executive coaching to help you. You're going to have a personal development plan. Um, so that seemed to be the the right way to go. Uh, and yeah, that really helped me then just being able to challenge myself, challenge my coaching, being able to challenge other people's coaching and have some really good discussions and explore um, how you individually can, can improve and get better as a coach. Wow. And I can just see kind of all of the different ingredients coming together, both, you know, improving the environment for the, for the athletes, developing yourself and challenging yourself but also challenging the athletes so everybody's kind of all moving in a similar direction and you used a, a term earlier on a, a, around sort of a common purpose and I guess mm. is that is that coming back together again here in terms of actually you know how do you build cultures you know and how did you shape the future from there on in yeah I, I think I would say with a lot of uh, hard work forget right. <laughs> it like um of course, you know, if you're going into totally revamp a culture yeah. because you, you believe that has an absolute impact on the performance of the athletes going forward and their future, yeah. then there's going to be a lot of thunderstorms on the way because not everyone likes change. Um, people get used to certain habits. People get used to certain ways of doing things. And, you know, myself, with the performance director and I, worked tirelessly on making sure we were set in the right environment but but also that culture has changed significantly over the years so if we had the same culture in the first half of the london cycle now we also wouldn't be as successful now so culture evolves and changes depending again on the context so when we went in from into into the london cycle it was all about Right, we need there needs to be a little bit of education here, a little bit right expectations and standards on this is what we want in terms of performance. These are our expectations as a program, and this is what I expect from you as a staff and athletes. Um, so it's quite bold, it's quite direct, it was quite high challenge. The support was there in terms of this is what you're going to get from a program point of view, um, but we had to really go down the lines of we're going to work with athletes that want to showing us that they're committed. And they want to be the best athlete they can be. And also we see them as future potential medalists, whether that be in, in London or Rio. You know, we only want to work with athletes that are, have got two of those things. So it's quite bold. Yeah. But, you know, and, you, and people could say that's quite harsh because you only want to. But, but actually, you know, we, we had to deliver. It was literally now or never. If we didn't deliver in London, we're done. And, and you know, and the, history, and the future generations are not going to potentially not going to be able to take part in this sport. So I felt like there was a responsibility there yeah, yeah. on myself and the sport to make sure we, we do everything we can to, to deliver results in London, albeit in the right way. Um, but it was quite direct because we were trying to change a mentality and mindset about what is performance, what is world-class performance, what are the expectations, um, setting up a training environment where we can thrive and be the best we can be and we're challenging each other and we're pushing the boundaries, et cetera. Um, if, we, if I had that now, we 
we there would not be sustainable success so that was then and then all of a sudden as we come back from london you know we come back from london we've got we exceeded our expectations in london home games four medals fantastic and i remember you know we talked as a staff team and with the athletes we said if we carry on doing what we did in the lead up to london the same way i believe that we're going to lose athletes there was too much conflict and athletes are going to get sick and tired of being told what to do because there was a bit of that in the london cycle and athletes are getting older they want more input they want to be involved in decision making you know it comes into that flexible system again isn't it in terms of the context and the environment absolutely yeah and it's like right if we you know if we want success after success here which is harder yeah and 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 we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're changing and we're adapting, um, you know, how we work with athletes, how we work as a staff team, the culture that we set and the principles that we expect and the behaviours that we expect. So we revamped it all, right. you know, and some could argue that you've just been successful in London. Why would you change too much? But I always say that you, you need to change more, yeah. even more when you're successful. So, Greg, uh, what would you say are the two or three key pillars or principles for the environment you're trying to create? Just to give a sense of, you know, those that are listening in who are, you know, a lot of us are always striving for, you know, performance-based cultures or cultures that we can get the best out of people. And, you know, what does that kind of mean to you right here, right now in the environment that you're in? Well, the the first one, um, you know, everything I've just said really around giving the athletes having more input, be involved Mm -hmm. in decisions. So what what I would say there as a principle is, is very much make sure there's leaders everywhere. You know, a leader is not just somebody that, in in my context, is you know chief exec or performance. Yes, they have leadership responsibility, but but the more you can give everybody that leadership responsibility to know that you've got to make decisions, whether that be national coaches, pathway coaches, sports scientists, athletes. You know, because you as a head coach in my role, I can't be around everywhere. You know, always with the athletes in. Uh, when they're at home or when they're talking to each other in the corridors or with a, you know, at the, at the games when I could be in the village and they could be in the sports hall for whatever reason. So you've got to make sure you're giving people responsibility to, to step up and make decisions and be okay to take those risks. And also in an environment where they get things wrong, you actually give them um, credit that they've been able to be bold enough to make a decision even if they've failed or got that wrong. So you know that if people are getting decisions wrong, you've given the environment to be willing enough to make that decision. So you've got to support that. So there's got to be a, a, an environment where there's, there isn't this consequent, these fear of consequences if they make decisions wrong. And I think that is leaders everywhere that want to step up. That, that's definitely something I've learned along the way. And, and would I, you know, as I said, in the Beijing and, and London cycle, did we have leaders everywhere? Probably had leaders 50%, 50% none. And that was because of the philosophy that we were, bringing but then going into the rio cycle so we've got to make sure that everybody one has a say and input into where we're going as a sport and our values and behavior so that everyone feels accountable towards it and are more committed towards these values and the way that we want to do things but secondly you know come, at the end of the day we can do everything we can as coaches and we and we we try and inspire we empower we we do everything we can selflessly to to get the best out of the athletes and we and you know in in our sport we are next to the athlete on the ground on the front line yeah but they make that final final decision on the court you know they make that final call and so therefore they have to be unbelievable great leaders 
to know how they're feeling under pressure to make those decisions. And so that for me is the first principle in terms of um, where I would, well, where I am now and where I'm going with the, the culture and philosophy in, in my sport. And challenges ahead, what, what do you see those as being in terms of actually really achieving that culture and that environment that you're trying to create? Can you envisage any, any stumbling blocks or things that you need to be mindful of? Yeah, and I think one of the, one of the biggest challenges, I think, uh, I've noticed probably in the, the Tokyo cycle, but for the right reasons, is you know understanding this want versus need uh, with athletes and coaches. So, and the more we can improve coach-athlete relationships, coach dynamics with the athlete, this sort of creating this uh, space of vulnerability and embracing that vulnerability. And again, this two-way street that actually it's, a, it's around the, the coach having input and the athlete having input. There's always going to be challenge there because there comes to a point where, you know, this is what the athlete says they need. Um, or a coach says, well, this is what I think, this is what I think you need. Yeah. Uh, and that could be different. So they're always going to be the challenges and doing that in a way where it's, um, there's, there's high levels of trust, there's high levels of respect and, and we come together to problem solve you know, rather than potential pointing fingers or et cetera, et cetera. So I think that will be the challenge because as you, you know, as you grow and, and we would, that's what we want to do in our sport is you grow athletes that we want them to be leaders. We want them to be inspired to make decisions. At the same time, there'll be, as in with anyone's career, there'll be a time when you go, well, I think you need this. The same for me as a head coach that I think I know where I'm going to inspire, but there's some might go, I'm not sure if you, you, you need that. I think you potentially need this to develop. So creating that environment is very challenging, but if you get it right, can be very rewarding. So I think that is going to be the nice balance between inspiring people, leaders everywhere, but still everyone needs to be challenged. And it's making sure we do that in the right way, with the right culture, with the right values and align to those values for that common purpose. Um, because that's what it comes down to. In uncertain times and when you're feeling uh, and you're being really challenged and you've got to make a decision quick, it comes back to those principles and values and that common purpose. And I think if you have that, then you can make decisions quicker in times of need, but you can also, even in those times of conflict and those yeah. times of, of challenge between an athlete and a coach, it all comes back to that common purpose and it makes that situation a lot easier as well. So that's the challenge, but there's definitely ways to, to yeah. make it right. Greg, if I was to simplify, and I'm, I'm taking, I want to take, a back, take you back to a point where you talked about in those early days about the relationships that you had with your sports coaches. And, you know, and I'm now connecting that to this kind of idea of leaders everywhere. And I'm just wondering, mm. you know, what is it that you personally really work on in terms of your skills and behaviours to ensure that you can be the best leader you can be? you know, and, and have that solid relationship. And again, what, what tips might you give to individuals listening in, whether it be in sport or business, that are thinking, actually, I want to be a leader, you know, in everything that I do, maybe not by title, but in terms of what I do and how I do it. What were the key skills or attributes or behaviours would you focus on? There's definitely a lot of skills you can focus on, but I think if you're going to put your energy in areas that have really helped me is, yeah. is first of all, if you're going to influence others, you've got to be able to influence yourself first. And so that's self-reflection, self-awareness to really, re and I mean, really understand who you are. Going back to what, you know, me and Beijing, I didn't. I didn't know I was going to feel that way uh, in a certain environment, in a certain context. 
But by going through it and then being quite analytical about it, I did. So then I could do something about it in, in the future. So having that self-awareness to know that how you feel under pressure, how are you being as a coach in these different situations absolutely has an impact on not only how you coach, but how you're perceived and then how your athletes are going to perform. So that for me, and that's the same in coaching, same in leadership, you as a CEO, a managing director, how you are being has an absolute instrumental effect on the people around you and the people that you line manage and the people that's in your business. Um, and understanding that you, you know, you might not be coming across, you might be coming across a certain way, but that's not your intentions. So your behaviors are showing one thing, but your intentions do another. And the more that you can align those two things together, your behaviors and your intentions, and having that self awareness to be able to do that, I think is a, is a critical thing of a, of a of a great coach and a great leader. Um, aligned with that is probably that emotional intelligence. Um, you know, we hear that a lot these days. You. Know, you know, is, is technical expertise more important than emotional intelligence and, and vice versa? And I think, you know, for me, there are so many technical and tactical coaches out there in our world and all sports could say the same. So therefore, how are you making the biggest difference? And for me, it's the, it's the relationships that you make and having that emotional intelligence to know in the right context, in the right timing, when do I go and challenge an athlete? When do I support an athlete? When do I go non-directive versus directive in my, in my coaching philosophy? And I think having that emotional intelligence to understand each and every one of your athletes, their needs, their wants, their motives, um, what makes them tick in certain situations and stressful situations, it all comes down to that emotional intelligence. So you're understanding how other people feel and you have the empathy towards other people and that compassion, but you also know how you feel in that situation. And therefore, what I, decision I need to make based on those two things. And not just, I feel like this as a coach, so therefore I'm going to do this to the athlete. I'm going to tell this to the athlete, but it's actually knowing two ways. This is how I believe the athlete's going to be feeling right now. This is how I feel. And with that emotional intelligence, you can then make the best decision in your in the skill set that you have. And I think that, in again, in any context in leadership, that is so important to not just go with how you feel as an individual, but taking in the input and the understanding and the perspectives of your athletes or your employers. Um, to then make an informed informed decision. I think that's what I've learned significantly uh, over the years. And that's where you can see how I'm talking there is, is changed the way my philosophy has gone as, in a head coach role from thinking you have all the answers to be very towel-based into then being a little bit more ask-based, you know, inspire athletes by asking some real great questions to really challenge their thinking, challenge their assumptions and their beliefs. Um, so then they can come up with some solutions and you can have this two-way approach rather than it always being one way all the time. And that's yeah. definitely, for me, a great skill, skill of a leader. And then on top of that is probably, it's very similar, but having the psychological flexibility in your coaching. Um, what does that mean? What does psychological flexibility mean in your mind? I think, again, it's just knowing what type of coaching or approach to, to, right. to, to take depending on the situation. But, but, but of course, if you don't know yourself, you don't know how you react in different situations, you can't do that because you're only coaching in one way all the time. And you're not checking in and challenging yourself in terms of how I just coached then in that situation. Was that actually right for one, the environment that was in, but also the athlete that I was, um, that I was coaching. So you've got to have that self-awareness and that ability to reflect and analyze on things. And then once you can have that, then you can, you can pick and choose. I really have a... Uh, I really believe that you can pick and choose what state emotion that you want to be in depend as long as you're in control of what you're doing. So you can act, you know, you can be quite impulsive in certain situations as long as you're in control of it. 
and you know that you've been in impulses for, for the right reasons yeah. versus making sure they, those impulses are not taken over your coaching and, and you're coaching with anger or coaching with um, uh, being quite forceful in your approach because your impulses are taken over. So I think you can, having that flexibility to be out here, I'm going to be a little bit more impulsive and here I'm going to be a little bit more calm, collective, analytical, depending on one, the environment that you're in and two, who you're coaching or who you're speaking to. Yeah. Um, and that takes up a huge amount of uh, emotional bandwidth, headspace. Um, don't get me wrong. So then my next one would be make sure you look after yourself because all the three things that I've just talked about takes up so much time, energy, um, can, can, can so much going on in your head. You've got to give yourself that time and that well-being and, and if you like, self-care to make sure that you are digesting it in the right way and you're looking after yourself because at the end of the day, we overwork as coaches. If we overthink, we're not giving ourselves the best version of ourselves to, to our athletes. So yeah. we've got to make sure we're looking after ourselves because, you know, I always say athletes, they expect the best from you as a coach every single day because they're giving themselves, you know, they're pushing themselves every day. So when you're at an Olympic Games um, and you've just coached four or five athletes in a row in a match, for example, some have lost, some have won yeah. different strategies different emotions being used, you, you know, you're knackered. Mm. But the next athlete you go to is expecting you to be 100%, because why wouldn't they? So how, you do, you, how do you press reset to, for, for that to take place for each individual athlete? Because there's certain sports where this happens a lot, you know, but I think it's also a, a, an attribute, which I want to do what you've just done a minute ago, sort of really link it to very many different contexts. This is not just about sport, is it? It's also about how do I understand myself and manage my well-being manage my psychological state and so on so how do you reset that button well i would say that is is absolutely unique to everyone um but the more that you talk about it and come together as a team to know that this is going to make a difference to performance it's going to make a difference to your to you individually and your health then the more you can get there so something that we talk about a lot and i know there's there's a certain sports that are talking about this a lot now is, is using well-being as an advantage not only individually but also in performance as a performance advantage the more we can look after ourselves so you know we we, we have self-care plans um uh, that everybody is is uh, has a saying to they, they you know they're driving their own self-care plans they and then we explore what is it for you as an individual that's going to give you the best chance to coach what do you need to do in between matches what do you need to do at the end of a day versus the start of a day who do you want to look out for you in case that you're starting to act in a way that is not you in your norm or your or in your sweet spot and therefore you need to give the can you give the allowness for people to be able to nudge you to go i've just noticed this over the last couple of days to just give you that oh, i didn't yeah that light bulb moment yeah i didn't think of that so there's a little bit of that psychological flexibility safety to be able to let people nudge you and challenge you in, in the moment um but then you could say, well, actually, sometimes you might not have that much time to go. You know, some people's self-care plans might be go and do some meditation, go and go for a run, go and go for a coffee and have some time on your own for a bit before you come back into that. But of course, the more you match after match, you haven't got the time to meditate because you're straight on to the next match. So what do you do there? And I think what we would say, and, and especially for me, is to just have, even if it is literally... 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds of, of pausing and reflecting and to go, right, what does this next person need from me? 
and how am I currently being? Just ask those two questions. You're actually coaching yourself. Yeah. Two key questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Self-coaching as you go from one match to the other, or you're walking from one venue to the to the next venue. Um, you know, to know that all the review and analytical and, and, and reflecting of that particular match can be done later. Yeah. It's on camera. You know, we yeah. can revert back to it. The thoughts and feelings will come up again. But we have to leave, like, leave that one behind and, and go to this one and change our energy in our direction. Yeah. 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 And it all comes back to what does the athlete expect from me? Yeah. You know, and, and they're going to expect you to turn up 100% ready for them because why would they not? Yeah. Um, you know, they're ready. They expect you to be ready. And I always say that the athlete shouldn't know based on my body language and, and how I'm coming across, whether in my last match, the yeah. athlete is won or lost. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you could say, well, it'd be great if they know the one, because then they're going to be buzzing from that. But actually that might increase their anxiety. And at the same time, they, you shouldn't come across that. You've just lost as a coach with an athlete before, because that could also increase pressure, anxiety and, and, and it could, you know, they could perceive the coach to not caring for them because now their head's down and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, you know, I'm going next. So one of the hardest things to do as a coach, because we're all human yeah. and we all have emotions and feelings, but the more we can just have that, that, that critical moment of, of asking those questions, um, we can hit the reset button and we can go again. Um, but then it's so important that if that is round after round, which it is in our sport, uh, whatever we do in, However, we come together to support each other as a team at the end of the day um, or whatever it is that people need in their own time. We absolutely have to advocate that because otherwise you can imagine you're going through those matches all day yeah. and there's no time to decompress. There's no time to get out of your system. There's no time to come together and talk about it and literally coming together and go, that was a tough day, wasn't it? How did yeah. we think that went? You know, and be okay with having those conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have space for that, you can imagine it's just getting on top of you, on top of you, on top of you, and you can hit the wall. You can totally hit the wall. But I think there's some great tips in there, though, isn't there, Greg, in terms of, you know, this is this is what's happening in your environment and in sport. But I'm, I'm sat here thinking also, you know, what about people that are going from one meeting to another or seeing one customer yeah. to another in a supermarket? Or, you know, there's so many different environments about where we could do with that uh, technique or ability to, to sort of reset. So, uh, uh, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that. I've got one question before I'd like to then head into the sort of like a quick fire round. You know, we've not really spoken about your role as working in the uh, Paralympic arena. And, and I'm really conscious, having worked myself in both parasport and able-bodied sport, that there is a, there's a difference. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you would say is the, the real value that working in this environment brings to you and your coaching. Mm, it's a great one. And I've just, uh, I've just come back off a, of- call recently about research going into this area what is right. the differences you know because yeah. we hear it we hear it a lot and uh, i think i'm going to be used as, as to to you know get a bit of detail around that given my experience i think firstly in terms of how has paralympic coaching improved me as a coach yeah or helped me as a coach and you know and co- some could argue that you always need to know the individual no matter if it's what sport you're in whether it's olympic and paralympic yeah um but what Paralympic has done for me is that you've had to think outside the box, I would say, significantly, because even though, yes, I've got different age groups, because in parasport, you've got totally different age groups. So, so one minute you could be working with a, a 16-year-old, and the next yeah. minute you could be working with a 41-year-old. So how yeah. you coach and approach those athletes yeah. are, are, can be totally different given gender, age, uh, level of, of of where they are in their program are they are they academy athlete are they a podium potential are they podium um, 
But also on top of that is the classification. Yeah. And actually, you know, in, in a sport like mining table tennis, we've got 11 different classifications. Um, I, you know, the, 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 the technical principles of what it takes for an athlete in class one who has a high level break, yeah. vertical break, versus someone in class 10 who's a standing athlete who's not in a wheelchair is it, it can be like a different sport, sport yeah. you can't coach the same tech because some of them don't have the the same physicality as everybody they they have uh, less power less strength um so they all complete not only are different in terms of their personalities and behaviors which is part of coaching but also their physical capabilities are different so therefore how you coach one individual will be different to somebody else given all those things so it, it equips you with you know wow you know you've got to be reacting you've got to be changed you've got to be evolving you've got to be got to be willing to try new things and what works for one athlete absolutely does not work with the other athlete yeah. given all those things even in the same classification because you have different disabilities within the same classification so of course everyone's unique so therefore the program that they have um, is totally unique to them and i think that's what challenges uh, i've had from a very early age yeah. which i would then say has helped me go on to to become even better in coaching and challenge myself and because there wasn't one way of doing it. And I'm not saying that is in Olympic, of course, everyone's different and, yeah. and everyone has their own ways, but you know, you could say generally some of the technical principles can be quite similar, but that, yeah. that just isn't the same in, in, in the power world. And it's, it's great to hear that actually, because you know, that's been my experience of working in both environments is that it actually really sharpens my skills in terms of actually really seeing the individual as an individual you know, and making sure that I coach the individual person rather than actually roll out the stuff that I know and actually mm. therefore ask better questions and look at my observation skills. And I found it's been a, a great experience in really sharpening um, my my practice, actually, you know, which I, I hear that sort of echo. So, um, and I'd like to come back to that at another stage, actually, because I think there's a, there's a whole podcast in itself in there. Greg, okay? Yeah, um, absolutely. But what I'd like to do then, just very quickly, is then as, as we sort of draw to a close, is to just fire a few questions at you, which I, I usually do, to really give some nuggets of sort of guidance or information for the listeners. Um, and the first one would be, you know, we, we, you've not really referred much to this as such, but, you know, you've learned loads along your journey. Are there any key texts or any key books which you might refer to that have really helped and informed you? Ooh, lovely. Um yeah um there's the i think one of my favorite books of all time is um endurance from ernest shackleton uh explorer and some of his you know some of these things that always stay with me are you know be bold in your vision but meticulous in your planning Um, and when you're under extreme pressure and uncertainty um stick to routines and what people know to give them that motivation commitment to, to keep going and keep keep the norm in an abnormal time um so so shackleton just that i always you know fantastic book love it yeah. uh, another one would be um if you get your culture right the results will take care of itself um something that i always revert back to absolutely believing as well you get the behaviors you get um yeah you get the behaviors the culture right then things will go in the direction you want it yeah. to go into uh, and, and i also like simon cynic start with why because i'm someone that um uh i'm someone that is very uh there's got to be a bigger purpose to the reason why we're doing things it has to come back to the why there has to be a deeper meaning and, and if we can really tap get really tap into those i'd say untapped potential of people that don't see that then the more that people will be able to 
all come in and collaborate together and start to achieve things they, they thought they couldn't achieve in, in the past. Um, and the final one, because I'll revert back to this one a lot as well, is David Marquette's um, Turn the Ship Around. Yeah. Uh, intent-based leadership, which again has uh, fascinated me, wanting to see that, that, that leadership story. And again, it goes back to making sure that everyone's wanting to play a part and not waiting to be told all the time. They are getting on with things, they're making decisions and, and, it, and it falls quite nicely into what I believe. So um, that one is, that one definitely has inspired me to change some of the things I do in, in my own coaching and leadership. Wow, four fantastic books there to, to dig into. Um, if you were to look back then, Greg, what advice would you give to a teenage version of yourself given what you know now? Um, it would well first it won't be make sure you don't think you have all the answers mm-hmm. um, be ready to to listen learn and and try be curious yeah with your coaching from a very early age yeah um, and also one of the ones I would say is 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 what's interesting here is even though sometimes you know don't you have all the answers but also at the same time don't think that everybody else has all the answers and you don't um would definitely be one you know going into certain environments where you think olympic gold medalists or coaches that have won multiple medals you know you think that but actually the way that you can absolutely come in with with different viewpoints and perspectives that they've never thought of actually and challenge them and we can all challenge each other so one would be at the same time of not thinking you have all the answers secondly nor does anybody else by the way yeah, yeah. you know it's like just <laughs> remembering that remembering that yeah, yeah. two perspectives there isn't there which are healthy mm. to look at it through both lenses great stuff um in terms of two or three people have impacted on you in your life. Could, could you name, you know, who's, who's been the really pivotal people that you think that have really steered you on your journey? Say the two most, if you can, can think of any. Um, I th- well, going back to what I said, you know, before it would have to be uh, my parents. Yeah. So mom and dad, because, you know, they supported me. They, they Set showed you me way. that. <laughs> Yeah, and they showed me that love and care that, you know, they do everything to help you be the best you can be. And I think that genuinely that that skill or that is, is, is you know, I think from a very early age, like I said before, you, you're filling up your child with um, uh, all different behaviours and values. And I think that's where that came from, from, yeah. from a very early age, which was then the reason I got into coaching and got into, into this career. Um. And I, yeah, I, I would I'd probably say just uh, um, the coaches that I've worked with for a long time. Yeah. Um, so some of them, uh, so Neil Robinson, Matt Kenny, uh, Andrew Rushton, you know, uh, and also our performance director, Goritz Veko. Um, we've been on a journey for a very long time together. Yeah. And yeah. we've sort of helped shape each other's career and shaped each other's philosophy and yeah. uh, collaboration. So, you know, they've definitely helped shape the way that I am today and, and to coach with them for a long time uh, shows the amount, huge amounts of trust and respect we have for each other and able to support each other, but also challenge each other at the same, same, same time. Yeah. It's not always been, uh, at times there's been a lot of conflict, but I think you have to go and find conflict in performance because you, you can get stale and complacent, yeah. but it's done in the right way, in the right environment, the right, 
people not taking it personally then so i yeah i have to thank those people to definitely for for that my last question greg um you've been kind enough to sort of be vulnerable and share your journey along the way whose sports story would you be keen to hear um wow that's a great one (laughs) (laughs) i I mean you know there's there's so many but i think it'd come down it'd probably come down to oh you've got me thinking here is there one (laughs) yeah there definitely is i'd love to know uh uh, someone like a, a, a an eddie jones all the way from childhood, yeah, you know, to where where he is today in terms of coaching philosophy and brilliant, you know how he does what he does. That would that would be the one that would really get me uh, the one I'd look at. Yeah, fantastic, Greg. It leaves me just to say a massive thanks for for sharing a real insight into your world. And you know, I I, I do feel we've only just sort of taken off the first few layers of the onion, and there's so much more to your journey and what's been going on. And you know discussions around sort of culture and leadership and I know the work and the, the reflections that you've got not just from within your sport from other sports and from business as well so you know thanks for sharing so much along the way there um, should anybody be interested to find out a little bit more about you and your journey and to make contact with you to find out a bit more how might they be able to uh, sort of keep track of you there's a, is there a social media way or a website or yeah anything? well I'm on uh, LinkedIn so Greg Baker um, on LinkedIn I'm you'll see me there as uh, and the title I have on that is head coach at British Power Table Tennis. Um, so, so there is that. Um, on there, you'll find my email addresses and, and, and contact details yeah. there. So, so LinkedIn is is the one one place to go to to contact me further, or if you want to find out anything else, for sure. Great. Well, Greg, I'll make sure those sort of details are on the on the show notes there. Stick with the with the podcast should anybody wish to make contact. But once again, thanks ever so much. Uh, good luck in the next few months and years as it's such as we go forward into a you know another cycle towards different Olympics as we go forward. So good luck with that and taking the teams forward. Um, and also good luck in your career. You know, I, I feel like you've shared loads about what, what you've got up to so far, but I also have a real sense that there's so much more to come in terms of your offering around leadership and, and people development in a wider context. So good luck with that. And, and thanks ever so much for being with me today. Cheers, Dave. Really enjoyed it. And I hope, uh, hope it comes across well. Well, I don't know about you, but I felt I had a real deep insight into the world of a high performance coach challenging to be at the top of their game. I was also drawn to the attention Greg now gives to the importance of the culture and the environment that he creates to allow individuals to perform at their best. Greg's philosophy in a highly technical and tactical environment is also very people focused. And I like the idea of psychological flexibility, which he referred to on a number of occasions. From his early years as a young coach, Greg has clearly learnt a great deal about himself and adapting his style and approach to get the best out of others. For me, the skill to be adaptable and flexible in your approach as a parent, a teacher, a coach or leader is critical in being able to release the potential of others. And this was a key theme that thread through the conversation. Now, as usual on the podcast, I'm keen to pose a couple of questions for you to ponder. You may wish to take them a step further than ponder and take action. Action is what will really make the difference. So based on my reflections on what Greg said, the questions I would pose are one. How well do you really know yourself? What do you need to do to uncover your blind spots or be reassured that what you perceive is what is actually received and is aligned? 
you may also wish to ask yourself, how honest are you being? Question number two, how do you reset before every interaction so that you bring the best version of you to all your relationships and interactions? What do you need to do to ensure that this reset is effective for you? Now, please take some time to consider one or both the questions and take some action. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is episode number 30 and the last in series three. Over the past couple of weeks, the feedback has been fantastic and that a number of listeners have shared their takeaways with me and the actions they have taken. They have also shared that the weekly episodes are not allowing time to reflect on the content. With this in mind, and as we are at the end of series three with the 30th episode, I'm going to take a break from releasing weekly and allow you time to catch up on listening and reflect on the content. I'm going to use the time to meet new guests and develop further supporting content and resources for the Sports Stories Academy. I'm really excited about directing further energy into the Academy and I'm confident it will provide you with even more value. So over the next six weeks, why not go back and listen again to an episode you really enjoyed? If you're like me, you often pick up something different the second time round. Alternatively, listen to a story of somebody you've never heard of or don't know. There is often some great value in this too. Please continue to follow and engage with Sports Stories on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook or alternatively you can find me on Twitter at Summit Dave. I will use these platforms to keep you updated on developments and release new resources and content in the Sports Stories Academy and will also announce the release date for Series 4 of the podcast. Now, it just leaves me to sign off Series 3 with a number of thank yous. I want to thank all my guests from Series 1, 2 and 3. We have done 30 podcasts and the insight never shared before stories, tips, guidance, book recommendations, and success quotes and sayings have just been incredible. I want to thank the Small Sports Stories team also for supporting me. Your belief, vision, enthusiasm, and commitment to developing the podcasts and the Sports Stories brand is much appreciated. And lastly, thank you, the listener. I really appreciate you joining me each week, providing comment and feedback, following me on your podcast platform and engaging with sports stories on social media. It is my real hope that you have gained some value from the previous series and I really look forward to having you back with me for series four where I already have got some amazing sports stories lined up to share with you. So until next time, take care, keep in touch with us and I'll be back with you pretty soon.